Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero. And this week, my guest is TMO contributor and journalist Charlotte Henry, direct from London. Charlotte, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Very excited to be here. I'm so happy to have you on the show. For the listeners, I'll introduce you. You are a London-based technical journalist, a self-described media junkie. You write about Apple and, and now for the Mac Observer as well. You've also in the past written for City AM, London's daily business tabloid, Computer Business Review, The Independent on Sunday, and CapEx. So you can introduce me to those later. It's great to have you on the show and get to know you better. You're one of our newest writers to Mac Observer. You've contributed in the past, but but now um, you're taking a, a much greater role as a regular contributor. So welcome to the Mac Observer and welcome to Background Mode much yes i i was doing columns from london for a while back but uh now now you've got to put up with me a bit more <laughs> how did that happen who approached you and and how did you guys work that out to become a regular contributor so okay so my story with the Maccas ever starts on the british tech network um with jeff gamma and jeff and i were on a show together ah that explains it Right, so we were on a show together and we started chatting and thought it would be fun if I contributed some columns from London, which I did. And then obviously we need it with a... Do, are we allowed to talk about Jeff anymore? Do we pretend he doesn't exist to us No, anymore? no, no, Jeff's a family member. He'll be a family member forever. We, we haven't, uh, you know, disinherited him or something. No. Um, <laughs> no, so and when obviously, particularly when Jeff left and was having a line at his new job, they needed someone who's up early, particularly Eastern time, and it per- fitted perfectly with my time zone. So we kind of worked it out like that. And also, obviously, here in London, we have a burgeoning tech scene. We have a load of stuff going on here that's very interesting to TMO readers. Yeah, I like your perspective. You Not only do you get an early jump on the U.S. Be, being ahead of us in time, so you're right on top of the morning news, but uh, you bring an interesting perspective there from the U.K., England, and uh, tell us about things that we just kind of heard about but didn't know much about, and you explain them beautifully all to us. And so you're making a great contribution. Thank you. Kind and yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting stuff stuff happening here in, in London. A lot of startups and in Europe more widely as well, but London in particular because of the tech startup space in an area of East London uh, known as Silicon Roundabout by by some people, and uh, which is right next to the City of London, the financial district that was deliberate. And so th- there's a lot of exciting stuff happening here in London. And you're covering it all for us in great style. So I wanted to ask you about your career and how that evolved. I'm curious to get to know you better, and I'm sure the listeners are too. Um, You said that you grew up in uh, northwest London, where you still live. Were your parents an influence on you when you were younger? How How did you kind of evolve into being a technical writer? I'm not sure, actually. So I think there's always been kind of modern technology in the home whatever it was uh, you know a new tv or needing making sure that we had a you know desk one of the old original desktop computers in our home so that stuff was always there and i was lucky to have access to that stuff so i'm sure and uh, at school i studied kind of it 
kind of always a bit of a nerd in school and kind of interested in that side of things. Interestingly, I don't think in London, in the UK, I don't know how this compares to America, I don't think the way we teach IT in school, certainly when I was there, kind of, it wasn't very good. It was kind of learn how to use the Microsoft Office suite, basically. <laughs> right. Did you grow did up that... with Macintoshes or did that come later? Okay, so I got into using Macs because I was a music technology student and basically you can only produce music on a Mac. Oh, okay. And that is why I moved completely to Mac because producing audio and video, which is what I did for my university career, was you can only do that to a high level, in my opinion, on a Mac. Are you, are you um, still using a Mac today? I assume you uh, have a favorite Macintosh on your desktop. I have a, a MacBook, MacBook Pro that I am. Um, I think you're going to have um, some empathy with me on this job. <laughs> I have a kind of ten-year-old MacBook Pro, eight-year-old oh MacBook Pro which I've kept alive through various kind of Frankenstein upgrades <laughs> to the RAM and also because I'm just so emotionally attached to it. So let's see, 10 years of 2008. Um, it's, it's, it's 2010, it's in, actually. Okay, 2010. That would be Intel. That would be the modern yeah. aluminum design, CD player, Firewire 800 maybe. <laughs> And I am deeply emotionally attached to it. Oh my! But Have any of the new computers even tempted you, like the new MacBook Air or the new MacBook so, Pros with the USB C and all of that? So I'd love you. The new MacBook Airs, I think, are really beautiful, and I've always kind of fancied the the Mac Pro, the kind of the little boxy Mac Pro, or no, the Mac Mini. And the Mac Mini that they released at the last event. I was kind of really taken by that. That was a long period of time. I was hoping that uh, Apple would redesign the case on that and take it away from being just a little box that's so un- nondescript and make it make it look cooler. But now, four years later, they come out with the same case design. That was kind of odd. Did you I like it? Kind of- yeah. yeah, I was really taken by it whilst watching the event, actually. So I would quite like one of those as a kind of what I'd be interested to know, and Apple did make quite a point of this, is kind of how you can produce things like... So any of these devices you can produce writing on. That's easy. How, speaking, speaking of producing writing, uh, what's your favorite tool for constructing text? Do you, do you go right into WordPress and, and, and construct your articles there, or do you write in some other tool and drop it in? So I have a couple of favourites. I If I'm writing just quick articles, I might do it in text edit first. I'm also a big fan of Grammarly, which um, not least because it can make spell check me in American English so that I remember to put in the Zs and things for you guys. Oh, okay. <laughs> do you got, well, that's a good question. Um, you, you consciously convert from British spelling over to American spelling? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I there's a lot of times where I've had to change S's to Z's and the like. Um, the other tool I'm a really big fan of and I've used for writing my first book, which is coming out next year, is Scrivener. Oh, um, yes. Everybody loves that. I do, too. 
it's a fantastic tool. I love the way yes. you can compile the research together. I love the way you can move just different sections around. Um, I love the way it organizes the text. Um, so I'm a huge, huge fan of Scrivener. Well, we'll talk about your book in the second half of the show, but right now I wanted to get back to growing up. Were there, were there yes. technical influences on you? Like, were you a Star Trek fan or did science fiction lead you into your interest in technical media and, and writing or science or I, anything like that? So, yes, I always w- enjoyed school. But Doctor for Who, me, of course. <laughs> actually, I am... I'm being thrown out of the country shortly because I'm one of the only people in England that is not a Doctor Who fan. Oh, really? I'll tell you a secret. I'm not either. There we go. We had a a little insight into how TMO works. There was a big row amongst TMO staff, I think yesterday or the day before we're recording this show, uh, about who our favourite Star Trek captain was. Oh, yes. Yes. Janeway. But, um, no, for me, it was really... I was always kind of interested in that stuff and it was really audio and video that made me really further interested in in the actual hardware and the technology. That was kind of my entry point always. Did you run into any resistance as being a a technical woman in the field? I'm always curious about that and how, how women go through that STEM process and survive and flourish and become technically successful. Okay. So I'll tell you a story of my first day at university on a, I was a music technology major. We declare, you know, we, in English universities, you describe a subject from the, from the get go. It's not like the American system where you go through a year or two and then declare your major. I was there as a music technology major and I walked into the room and it was a combination of music and music technology students and we were all mingling around on our first day at this new university. And then one of the one of the lecturers asked the room to split. It said, could the music technology students go this way and the music students go the other way? And I looked around and realised for the next three years I'd be the only girl in my class. Mm. Mm. The class was kind of... Which was fun, and um, well, that's okay if you're the only girl. But if you take a ribbing or people make life difficult for you, that's no fun. I mean, you know, you get this kind of very brotherly sisterly relationship where you're just constantly the kind of object of and you know whatever else. But it was good fun. And so that was kind of quite a clear... I remember that moment very clearly. But often people are really encouraged being women that are involved in tech. And I think a lot of people and more from women in tech. I mean, for me, the people over the years that I've got really interested in were people like uh, Cara Swisher, who really really groundbreaking women in the technology field right. uh, I mean she's one of the great ones and she's I think she's I think she should be a kind of model for all technology journalists but particularly particularly female technology journalists and then of course we've had people like Cheryl Sandberg who is obviously now under huge fire but was originally Right, you know, she was whatever we think now a huge inspiration to lots of people. So, 
are quite are quite keen to hear from women in tech. Um, but I think there's often a perception from some women that can never know as much and never be as technically proficient or not have the depth of knowledge that they do, which obviously is yeah, just not true. Nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my wife is a PhD and a professor and we've had I mean, quite a career together. Yeah. Exactly. So, plenty more where your wife came from and plenty more coming up as well. So you describe yourself in, in your bio as working to explain the collision between technology, politics, and the media. That's quite a talent you've developed. How, how did you get into the, to the confluence of all those things and become good at explaining the, the collision between those? I, I don't know... If it was a talent for me, it just seemed to be the thing that was happening. It's To me, it's becoming increasingly clear. You can't understand one of these things without understanding the others. There's, there's hugely obvious examples. Can you dis- understand the American election in 2016 or the Brexit referendum here without understanding the technical issues that were going on either with mm-hmm. allegations of Russia interference or how social media worked or any of those things. You can't, uh, you know, media company or a tech company is Apple, is Facebook. These are important questions that I'd... They, they were happening in front of us and I was just kind of fascinated by them. Technology brings up a lot of issues in politics. We were talking the other day on... TDO about artificial intelligence needing to be regulated. All of a sudden you have, again, a collision between technology and politics. And in the United States, there's some concern about the technical level. There are a few PhDs and scientists in the United States Congress. Uh, There are other people without PhDs who have a technical understanding and a good background. But in general, uh, people, I think, in the States worry that American Congress is not technically astute enough as a broad body to deal with artificial intelligence and 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 facial recognition and emerging robotic technology and climate change and all these technical issues that confront us. Is is that the same in the UK or are you guys in better shape than we are with your politicians? Well, no, I, I think that issue is I think across legislatures around the world a lack of engineers and people with technical proficiency would would be an issue. Blunt hmm. about it. If you were very technically proficient, why would you go and become a politician when you could work in a massive company? Well, if you have a passion to make a contribution. Well, perhaps you arguably have more influence in one of those companies. So I can see there's a... It will be a significant ongoing issue, I think, and it's an important one that you raise, and you're right to raise it. Um, Yeah, and it just seemed to me, living in a time where kind of none of these things um, are independent of one another anymore, are they? Right. Right. Like, we, we don't... Like I say, is you know, is Netflix a tech company? Is it a media company? What is Apple going to be in 2019? You know, I, I was looking back through some of my earlier pieces for TMO, and I was writing 
in for 2017 how could apple become and the, the discussions about that and how that could happen and, and just that kind of thing i've always found interesting i never found well i did find straight up but there's a lot of people that are doing that it seemed more interesting to look at this kind of perhaps more modern take excellent excellent well we've come to the close of the first segment of the show i have a whole bunch of questions i want to ask you in the second half but first we need to take a short commercial break folks we'll be back in 60 seconds stay with us Hi, this is John Marcellaro with the Mac Observer. With all the recent news about online security breaches, it's hard not to worry about where our data goes. Making an online purchase or simply accessing our email could put private data at risk. As I've explained before, you're being tracked by social media sites, marketing companies, and your mobile or internet provider. Not only can they record your browsing history, but they often sell it to other companies who want to profit from your information. That's why I'm taking back my privacy using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that run seamlessly in the background of your computer, phone, or tablet, your iPad. Turning on ExpressVPN protection takes only one click. ExpressVPN secures and anonymizes your internet browsing by encrypting your data and hiding your public IP address. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than $7 a month. Also, ExpressVPN is rated the number one service by TechRadar and comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep hackers and spies from seeing your data, ExpressVPN is the solution. And if you don't want to hand over your online history or your, to your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is also the answer. So protect yourself online today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash BGM. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com forward slash BGM for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash BGM to learn more. And thanks, ExpressVPN, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with TMO contributor and technical journalist, Charlotte Henry. Charlotte, I wanted to ask you about something you told me earlier. Um, you started a news blog that kind of launched your career. Tell me about that. Oh, I can't. I think I started fiddling around with blogs like lots of people do at uni. I graduated uni and kept writing, and it was kind of around a general election here as well. And then I realised people were reading it. How did, how did you get them to do that? Was it because of the particular angle you took, or how did you get noticed? I'm not sure. I mean, I think social media has a huge part to play in it. Um. And I was writing predominantly a political party here in the UK called the Liberal Democrat Party that uh, in 2010 government for the first time and nobody really knew much about them. But I was one of the people that did. So that probably helped a bit. Um, and But also, again, I was always quite early on invested in not just writing the same news as everyone else was, but trying to bring together this more social media influenced, technology influenced, looking at things. The trick is to get paid, though. Did that blog lead to some of your first professional gigs? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, whether it was appearing on TV news or 
uh, like paid for gigs. Yeah, it did. And I had, um, we had a, used to have a magazine that sadly no longer exists here in the UK called Total Politics. And I would write a tech column in that every month. Um, and it would be looking at the kind of apps you could use for a political campaign, say, or to follow politics. So again, it was trying to take, uh, you know, a more techie approach to these things. Are you still reading for writing for City AM? Yeah. No, no, I that was a that was a staff job. Oh, okay, all right. So tell me about some of the places that you're currently writing. Where, where can we find Charlotte Henry's work these days, besides the Mac Observer? Uh, yeah, so every day I'm um, mainly at the Mac Observer, and then a whole host of places over here in the UK. And the best way to keep up for me with me is usually on Twitter, which is at Charlotte A Henry. But um, write for a variety of places here in the UK, which is uh, which is good fun. And it's interesting. We're starting to get a bit more of an ecosystem of some independent websites. Uh, and those kind of things, which I think is really good for our media environment. Okay, now I want to talk about your book. Uh, you've oh. written a book. I, I assume you wrote it with Scrivener and exported it to Word for your publisher. Sure. You got it. And you wrote this, this, this book that I've just heard about called Not Buying It, which will be published Buy. next year. Yes, Tell me about it. Yeah, but please don't take it. Yes, don't take the title as any kind of instruction. So, <laughs> of course not. We all want to buy it. It's it's a book on fake news and post truth. Um, what is post truth? So we know what fake news is. It's kind of act of deliberately putting misinformation and false information out into the world. Mm -hmm. And post truth is kind of defined as. The era in which we live, where basically no one cares about the truth anymore. The truth has become subjective, and we don't have many facts anymore. And large part of that comes down to technology. We have access to greater information than ever before. It's presented in a way, all the same way. You know, you can't tell one if one website is legitimate and one website isn't from its design. It's the you know they all appear in your social media feeds in the same way, and it's uh, frankly uh, it's it's a bit of a mess. And there's a lot of people who are trying to work out what we do from here. I think the tech companies really really need to step up and and take a look at it as well because the likes of Facebook and Twitter are clearly not doing enough at the moment. One of the things I, that I tell people is that you can't learn how to read the internet on the internet. You have to have a good technical education first to be able to size up what you read and put sanity checks on everything. Right, and we all fall for it all the time, don't we? I mean, it's so easy for all of us when we're reading three different articles at the same time to not look properly and nonsense. And, uh, and yeah, it happens all the time. But uh, it's an interesting thing with the book. I, um, I started... The publisher I, uh, who wanted me to write for them did, operates in a slightly different way. They they operate on a crowdfunding basis, which is actually a really it's quite an exciting way to produce a book. So you have various levels of pledges, um, and the publisher at the end puts the people who have pledged name in the front of the book, and people who pledge at a higher level. Oh, like Kickstarter, a, you know. yeah. Oh, like Kickstarter. 
It's that kind of thing, but only the platform is only for Russia. So, you know, it's their platform and it's only for books that they sign to their publishing company. Um, and it's been quite an interesting way of doing it. Is this going to come out in hardback or is it going to stay electronic? Is there paper, paper, paperback and Kindle. Okay, great. Well, I wish you luck with that. Yeah, no, and it was an interesting process kind of selling a book before it's published was kind of interesting. And I quite like it in the way that it kind of makes readers more involved in the whole process, which is rather nice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If, you have a, if you're a known writer and you have a brand... Then you can use that brand to engage your audience. That's that's what they tell writers to do. Right, and uh, you know, and but it's also it's it's just nice that people who are interested in your topic, some I know, plenty I didn't know, wanted to buy this book, support it, and be surprised to know give give me their opinion. So I wanted to ask you um, another question: Is is working with the American team at the Mac Observer different than working with your writing teams in the UK in some way, or is it pretty much all the same? I was wondering if there's any differences in the way we work. I think broadly not, because news is news is news, and you know what counts as news. You know, in particular, after we, we're dealing with a global a global company and global technology, so. News is kind of a, you know, it, it is universal in that sense. But I think, yeah, I'm kind of I like the American work ethic. I like the way I find it. What is weird is how how disparate our team is, and that I haven't quite got used to. Most of the people in the UK are a short tube ride away. Um, most of my colleagues at the Mac, in fact, all of my colleagues at the Mac Observer, bar Brian, our, our editor, uh, I've never met any experience, but we talk the whole time. So that's kind of quite a weird, a weird feeling. Mm, interesting. But uh, you obviously work as a freelance journalist, uh, lots of virtual teams in the UK like we do here, working out of uh, homes instead of offices. You're in the same city. It's kind of, it feels a bit, in city you can kind of, it's easier to meet in person, whereas obviously we don't have that luxury much at TMO, but we speak, actually most virtual teams. So. Yeah, the United States is a big country. We're really spread out. So it's, it's, uh, what spread we out. Do. yeah. Well, we only have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask you about your, some of your personal life. Uh, you told me what you do in your spare time. What, what, what before the show, uh, t- tell me about what you do when you have some spare time off. Mainly watch sport. I'm a big, a big soccer fan. See, I oh, of course, chocolate. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I'm a big soccer fan, um, and I'm a huge, huge music fan. Obviously, this is what I studied at university, and I've always been a huge music fan. So those are my two uh, real passions, and I'm lucky enough in London that I get to, you know, we have from amazing restaurants, amazing bars, um, amazing kind of amazing cultural city that mm-hmm. kind of, is, which is, you know, one of the reasons I love living here and have always loved living here. And so uh, there's always stuff to do around here. But, yeah, I'm a huge, huge sports fan, including American sports, I have to say. I've been known to 
jumping. I'm a big baseball fan. That's my main American sport that I like. Um, way to Yankee Stadium before, and then the game was rained off as I got to the gates, which was terribly disappointing. Oh. But we have them coming. Oh. And we have them coming to London over the summer, which is exciting. Next summer. Oh, cool. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it's very exciting. The red, they're playing two games here. Um, and so, yeah, I, I usual things of, uh, you know, friends and family and kind of hanging out here in London. You also which, mentioned you that know, you are addicted to mystery novels. Who are some of your favorite authors? I've always been attracted uh, to John D. MacDonald and Robert Parker, but those are American writers. So I was... I'm a big fan of Ian Rankin and his character, his Reba's character, who is a Scottish policeman who is rather wonderful. Oh, do you watch uh, Shetland on Netflix? Because that's got a Scottish detective, Jimmy Paris. So it's that kind of vibe. Who's a wonderful, wonderful writer here. Uh, there's a wonderful female writer, a thriller writer called Sophie Hanna, who's pretty amazing. I'm here, who's brilliant. Um, there's also and my favorite. I think my favorite kind of series and trilogy uh, was the Millennium series. You know, the girl with the dragon tattoo and all those. Very easy to read, very accessible, mm. but great fun. Mm. Like a movie. Cool. Um, Do you have any aspirations to write a mystery novel yourself? Now that you're a book author. <laughs> no, I no. didn't think about it. But fiction is a different beast. It is. It's a real talent and a real art, and it's it's uh, requires a high level of skill to construct a attractive, readable book. Yeah, I think all of us in the technical area have aspirations of being science fiction writers, but not a few of us have the talent. (laughs) Right, and it is. I think it's a really, really special talent actually to be able to write fiction. Yeah, because you're creating something from nothing. Not so much with non-fiction. With non-fiction, you have the facts and the information. Right, right. And, of course, there's always that moment where you have a blank page and we start every day at the Macintosh with a WordPress screen that we have to fill in. But it's a different... It is a different thing, I think, writing fiction and uh, affirmation for people that can write uh, beautiful fiction. Well, we've come to the close of the show. We've run out of time. I want to thank you for being my guest and helping us get to know you better. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for joining me on Background Mode. Thanks so much for having me. That was really fun. Tell the listeners how they can contact you. You can, you can find me over at the Mac Observer. Uh, and on Twitter, I'm at Charlotte A. Henry. And at charlotteahenry.com is the website. All right, great. Well, thanks again for joining me. It was a pleasure. See you on the Mac Observer. We'll see you so shortly. All right. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed the show with Charlotte Henry. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. <laughs>